Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 50th episode of The Writ Podcast. Yes, that's right, 50 episodes. It's been a fun year since I launched The Writ and started The Writ Podcast, so thanks to all of you for your support and for coming along this ride. And though it is the summer, that doesn't mean there isn't still lots of hot political drama to talk about, like, for example, Patrick Brown. Yes, on Tuesday night, the Conservative Party disqualified Patrick Brown from the leadership contest. There's lots to discuss about the disqualification itself, but also what it means for the leadership race going forward. So, of course, I had to get the conservative leadership panel back on the podcast on short notice. You know them. Chad Rogers is founding partner at Crestview Strategy. Tim Powers is chairman at Summa Strategies. And back with us this week is Catherine Cullen, senior reporter at CBC News. Hey, everybody. Congratulations on your golden podcast, Jubilee. Yeah, I I feel (laughs) as the only person probably over 50 on this call, I just wanted to say in all my years of living, I've never seen a podcast quite like this, Spitting Chicklets. Anyway, appreciate being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, So why don't we start, uh, Catherine, I was hoping that maybe you could let us know what we know at this stage. And I should point out that this is 11 a.m. on Thursday, and it's very possible that things will change by the time you listen to this. But Catherine, where are we in this whole drama with Patrick Brown and the Conservative Party? Drama is the word, right, Eric? It's been a very dramatic uh, past few hours there. Listen, we know that Patrick Brown has been disqualified from the Conservative leadership race, uh, and that that, you know, it was a real rocket into the race. We know that the party is saying that the reason that he was disqualified, what they've officially said on the record, is that it was because of very serious allegations that have to deal with financing rules. But Brown himself has been um, somewhat more forthcoming than the party, frankly, about what specifically those allegations were. He has said, yes, the party did ask him about uh, the allegation that a private corporation was paying some of his campaign staff. Now, from Brown's perspective, and he really, he did the rounds yesterday. I mean, he did well over a dozen interviews with various media outlets, sort of pleading his case and all of this. He says he hasn't been given much information about what's going on. He calls these phantom allegations. The party is saying something very different. Uh, sources that have spoken to CBC and other news outlets say, listen, Last Wednesday, the party reached out to Brown's people, said these are serious allegations uh, that they say they had been forthcoming about it and given him an opportunity um, and his campaign an opportunity to engage with all of this. But when they weren't getting answers, they were satisfied with. They essentially said, listen, we have no choice here. We think these allegations are, are too serious. You've got to go. You're disqualified. Um, we know that Patrick Brown is fighting back, I would say, is the one other part of all of this. He's uh, brought on some some pretty impressive legal firepower in the form of uh, Marie Heenan and her firm. Uh, they've said that they are looking at the possibility of lit- litigation. And uh, there is, I think, a lot of um, questions about what could or could not happen. And maybe this is something that Chad and Tim would want to weigh in on uh, about whether or not uh, Patrick Brown might appeal all of this, although that would be an even more shocking turn, given that he spent the last couple of days uh, sort of taking a blowtorch to the credibility of the Conservative Party, or, or at least trying to. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that, you know, the LEOC or the Leadership uh, Election, election organizing, committee, organizing Committee, yeah, LEOC for short, as everybody knows it, um, you know, that they are a sort of a a body that can make this decision, but it's possible you can go to the courts. Jim Carahalios did that in the 2020 race and was able to get a court to more or less overturn the decision, but also make an opening for Leoc to then disqualify him again, which is what happened. Uh, so Chad, how serious do these allegations need to be for Leoc to actually make this kind of drastic decision to disqualify a candidate just about two months before the vote is in? Um, and someone who is not, you know, someone who was a real contender here. 
Well, remember the whole reason you have a committee run a, run a leadership process isn't to book the hall or uh, uh, prepare the balloons in the ceiling for the moment you announce the winner. When you agree to, you know, Tim Powers uh, amongst everyone on, in this conversation has actually sat on the first LEOC uh, of the Conservative Party of Canada as we now know it. Um, you agree as a volunteer to step forward and act as a fiduciary. So it's, it's like being on a board of directors and your number one obligation is the integrity of the process. Now, party elections are largely governed outside of the remit of Elections Canada, and parties are very worried about protecting that mandate in the future and not having the government regulator step in. So that's all the more reason that the volunteers around the table that form this thing we call LEOC aren't some faceless political conspiracy. They're the folks charged with running a process that is legal and clean and meets the standards of compliance they set in the rules. So how high is the bar? The bar is pretty damn high because no one likes blowing up their own process becoming the story, getting in the way of the candidates. I can imagine this would have been the most difficult decision made by any uh, group mm -hmm. of people running a modern leadership process for any Canadian political party. And I imagine we'll hear lots of stories about how grueling the decision was in the room. Because here's the dirty secret of, of, of the volunteer system of Canadian politics. You know, and I'm going to admit my sin here. There's lots of times where I sat in the room and said, you know, there's a right thing we need to do here because this person screwed up. And everyone says, ah, it's a volunteer process. You don't want to ruin someone's reputation. We don't want to be stuck in court. What if we just let them apologize? Or like, Let's just move on and not uh, act decisively and get in our own way here. Uh, I can imagine this was awfully grueling. I will also go back to Dr. Ian Brody running the process, former chief of staff of the prime minister, a professor of political science and author. Um, Dr. Brody isn't, isn't, allowing any foolishness to happen. And if he brought this forward to Leoc and said that uh, with a recommendation it needed to be acted on, that's enough of a good housekeeping seal of approval for me. Now, I'm not totally unbiased because I think Patrick's previous behavior had morally disqualified him from standing for leader uh, or, or the fact that he didn't hold a membership in the party and needed a waiver uh, to be allowed to run. The fact that more has emerged, uh, look, um, Sleaze follows Patrick Brown uh, around like uh, my, our first family dog, Annie, used to follow me uh, when I walk to school in the morning. Uh, uh, the guy just can't escape it. So uh, uh, it's a long answer to a short question, but it, it wasn't an easy decision. It would have been grueling. It might even be career ending for some people. They'll never want to be involved in a process like this again. But if you have a volunteer group of people that are charged with a set of rules and running a process, their role as fiduciaries in the integrity of the process is the number one thing you ask them to sign their name to. And they've executed that function. So as much as right now we're looking at a headline and saying, oh no, sleaze and controversy, this is actually what the process looks like when it works. This is what it looks like when the firemen show up and put the fire out. Fires are awful, but the fact that the fire department shows up shows that you did the right thing. Uh, so I, 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 I just feel an awful lot of empathy for the folks who had to sit in that room and make the call. Yeah, Tim, Brent, what's your, with your personal experience about this? How do you think this kind of decision went over? Well, I, let's, let's start with Ian Brody and, and party president, uh, Rob Battles. And Catherine heard me say this yesterday, and you may have as well, uh, Eric. Look, uh, I'm with Chad on this. Ian Brody is a person of strong moral fiber, integrity, intellect, and most importantly, extensive political experience in running leadership races. Rob Batherson would follow in suit and all those particular characteristics. I single out those two. Chad is right to point out the group. These two people who have become the face of explaining the conservative position are not going to do this, are not going to expel a candidate, a leading candidate, unless they have damn good proof and information. 
So I, like Chad, am prepared to err on the side of these people who I've known for over 20 years and believe are of high moral caliber and smart when it comes to politics. Where they did make a mistake, and Catherine and I talked about this yesterday in the, the lobby of the CBC, was the way they announced this. It shouldn't have been at midnight on a Wednesday because it plays into Patrick Brown's narrative of conspiracy. They shouldn't have waited until the end of the day yesterday to start giving out morsels of explanation. Now, there are reasons for that, I suspect, related to, as Chad's alluded to, fear of being sued and liability and all of that. Um, but I think even as we speak today, this morning, they still have to, for this to turn into a win for the Conservative Party, to demonstrate what Chad has just talked about, this is the right thing to do, give a fulsome and strong explanation of all of this um, and, and why they did it. And, and the only other thing I would say, look, and people who've served on LEOC know this, Chad's been around this as well. Of course, there's pressure put on you by other campaigns. That's just part and parcel of what you sign up. Everybody's giving you a perspective on every frigging decision that you make. But again, the people who sit on that group know that. And this notion that somehow they were patsies of Pierre Polyev, particularly Ian and Rob, to me is nonsensical. And Patrick, nor anybody else, has yet to provide any proof that that, in fact, is also true in his conspiracy response to this exercise. Catherine, while, you know, the integrity of someone like Ian Brody might be something that's taken for granted among, you know, Conservative Party members and supporters, uh, you know, for people like us outside of it, people in the media, people who are maybe not as attached to the Conservative Party, they might need a bit more information because the, mm -hmm. the perception of this is very much like, well, this does seem ha pretty hastily done. And while the party says, trust, trust us, there's lots of stuff here. It's very serious. It, 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 you might need a bit more than that to come out. I think that that is sort of, it's clear that the party yes. is uh, dealing with two dueling issues here. On the one hand, the um, and when you do speak to people involved in this decision, they are concerned about the legal ramifications of this, obviously. And given, again, that Patrick Brown has hired this uh, hotshot uh, legal team, to deal with this going forward, that's probably a pretty legitimate concern. On the other hand, the party is clearly being criticized. Um, you know, there's an editorial in the Globe and Mail. Yesterday, for some of my reporting at CBC, I was interviewing uh, conservative strategist Shakir Chambers, people who are out there saying there needs to be more transparency. Given Patrick Brown's significance in this race, not the front runner, but certainly um, somebody who's uh, was thought to potentially have a real impact on this race. He says his team had said that he um, had signed up some 150,000 new members. Uh, we have to take the campaign's word for it because the party doesn't give a breakdown like that. But somebody who said they were bringing a lot of new people into the party, it is a pretty big deal uh, to show him the door. And the fact that more information wasn't made public, I think some folks are saying it would really benefit the party to do that because it would show you know, if you, you say you have the receipts, that's been part of the discussion here. Patrick Brown's saying it's a phantom allegation. Folks sort of behind the scenes saying, listen, we've got paperwork to back this up. There's some people saying, well, you should put that on the table to make this all the more clear and not put the party's reputation at risk. As I say, though, you have mm -hmm. to balance that against the uh, the prospect that there there could be legal issues if you do go ahead and do that. And also the party has said um, they want to afford some protection to the whistleblower in all of this. And, um, you know, Tim alluded to the fact that uh, Patrick Brown has said that this is all uh, sort of machinations designed by Pierre Polyev's team. Both Pierre Polyev's team and party president Rob Batherson have said 
this is who wasn't Polyev's team. Batherson has said, in fact, that, uh, you know, the call was coming from inside the room, that it, the whistleblower was, um, it, it seems, a member of Patrick Brown's own team. Yeah. Can I just pick up on something Catherine said, uh, Eric? And I look, I 100% agree. I, 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 Chad may as well, too. I think he can speak to him for himself. But yeah, more transparency is needed. Absolutely. The story needs to be told because the threat for the Conservative Party now is is not the rockets being fired from Patrick Brown. It is the mess that they perhaps well intended have put themselves in by allowing Patrick and others to turn this into the story of um, the closed shop Conservative Party criticizing the liberals for ethical lapses and lacking transparency won't tell their members and Canadians what happened here. There's a way to do this where you can still protect uh, what you believe to be your liabilities. And again, Rob and Ian and other people over there know that. I would be surprised if we didn't hear more from them in the coming days. And as we saw today on Thursday, as we're taping, you know, things are coming out. The Global Mail ran a story talking about text messages that contained more information about what potentially happened and who did what to whom. So uh, though I don't think they can rely on a strategy of leaks, I think they have to embrace this. Knowing that Marie Hennon is out there, and yes, she's a, a, a very fearsome legalist, uh, but the party's going to be defending itself one way or another. They may as well get in front of it now. Yeah, and because for me, you know, this is uh, about, you know, there's lots of talk about whether it's about bulk membership buys or things like that, that we've seen in other leadership races uh, that have, you know, gone afoul of party rules and those kinds of things. Uh, but this is the kind of thing that is not just breaking the rules within the party, if it is what is alleged, yeah. but is breaking the law, right? This is the kind of thing that Elections Canada, or the Commissioner of Canada election steps in. Um, but why I think it's really important, at least for me, that for the transparency, I understand that the concern with the uh, person who came forward, but there is a difference between, you know, a murky kind of thing where someone has a job and there's questions about whether they're working on their own time or they're working on uh, time that was paid by a company or something that is far more mm -hmm. orchestrated, where there are receipts, where there are, some, you know, some intentionality in it. And I think, uh, Chad, that's probably the reason why there are these questions about why can't we see a little bit more? Because it could be something that's kind of gray zone or it could be something that's just blatant and everybody would agree that, oh, okay, they, the party had to do this. I wouldn't confuse our insane curiosity as far as the process with a lack of transparency. Uh, the fact that we heard about it right away is transparency because they knew the decision couldn't be kept secret uh, uh, for long. Uh, the second thing is, and, and Catherine hit on the key word, and, and this goes back to my, you know, my corporate practice where I have to advise, you know, special boards, uh, special committees of boards and the like. When you've got whistleblowers involved, you have a pretty mm -hmm. big obligation to the folks who come forward. And I think if you read between the lines on this story, we're talking about whistleblowers, plural, not singular uh, in this case. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so I, I, I don't think Dr. Brody and the party feel a lack of confidence in their action and the evidence that was brought forward. But I think their obligation to whistleblowers is fairly significant, number one, uh, to protect them from slap and other legal retribution that um, you know, the Brown campaign is already indicating would be its first response to any accusation. And the second part of this is, uh, you know, we have a party system in Canada that's largely unregulated. 
And what the parties say is, look, we shouldn't be subject to the Privacy Act. We shouldn't be subject to direct regulation of nominations and other processes by Elections Canada because we are the democratic process. And if you step in, the government overreaches into the political uh, and democratic arm and it will create an undue amount of influence or an ability of the government of the day through agencies to reach into party politics in an inappropriate way. Parties live in constant fear uh, that they are going to be regulated on things like their ability to talk to voters, their ability to keep lists, their ability to run these processes. So there is a new higher standard than has ever existed amongst the people running parties and running leadership processes about we can't step afoul and have Elections Canada prove we are bad stewards, that we are agreeing to things that are, are somehow outside of the Elections Act, even if the Elections Act doesn't immediately cover what we're doing. So we're also in that moment that we're seeing in so many other places in society where the standard is are going up. We are not allowed to behave the way we've behaved previously, even if it wasn't perfect. We're not allowed to have the excuse this is a volunteer process, it moves quickly. That's not good enough. And remember, the Brown campaign has potentially had a pattern of action, even in the few short months of this leadership race, of not measuring up to the minimum expectations on compliance. I think we saw tens of thousands of memberships with an unacceptable form of payment submitted uh, that they've since noticed they're not using the number 150 in their releases. Now they're using 100 plus uh, because they've already been found to be bad faith actors on a number of fronts in terms of participation in the process. So I'm, I'm, um, yeah, I want to hear more because I'm insanely curious about uh, what's actually gone down. But I, I'm not going to indict them with, uh, you know, Star Chamber uh, secrecy. Uh. Okay, well, then let's talk about uh, what impact this will actually have on the race. Uh, Catherine, we, have, we haven't really heard actually that much from the other campaigns. They don't seem to be wanting to get into this too much or trying to find ways yet to attract the 100,000 plus uh, members that Patrick Brown signed up. Well, I don't know about that. You're right, Eric, to say that we haven't heard sort of mm. um, writ large. Uh, that, you know, they're, 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 it's true. Some of the campaigns have been quite reticent to weigh in on this. We've gotten really boilerplate statements by and large. Um, but we all know that when it when we talk about this stage of the leadership race, what is actually happening in terms of persuasion, it's very much targeted, right? It is about those 675,000 or so members, uh, the campaigns now have the list. So certainly, yes, there are efforts at uh, persuasion underway. Frankly, they started, um, you know, as soon as the campaigns got their hands on the list, I was talking to someone with one campaign who was saying, you know, we're testing things out right now. We're reaching out to people and trying to see, is this is this the right message? Is that the right thing? Um, there is an opportunity here. I think everyone sees it most clearly for Jean Charest because there is a sense that Jean Charest and Patrick Brown, you know, frankly, they were asked over the course of the campaign um, whether or not they were in cahoots to some extent, but we can say, which they denied, um, but there's, there's an ideological sympathy there, right? So there's a sense, okay, would Jean Charest come in and just scoop up those 100,000 plus 150,000 uh, members that Patrick Brown has brought into the race? Truth is, I think that is easier said than done. In some cases, we really don't have a sense of how many of those people were just there for Patrick Brown and the specific things that he was making, uh, specific pledges that he was making, specific outreach he was making to some groups of new Canadians and whatnot. Would they be motivated to stick around and vote if Patrick Brown is no longer in the race? Uh, I think everyone does acknowledge that, you know, whatever outreach is being done, fundamentally, probably the person who is benefiting most from all of this is, of course, Pierre Polyev, because some people are just not going to show up uh, to vote by that September 10th deadline. And the fewer people that are voting, the bigger share of the pie uh, uh, Pierre Polyev is likely to have. But, I want to pick up a, again, Catherine, drive, driving the thoughts today. No wonder she's such a good reporter, but on, on the Sheree angle, because there's also a bit of a poison chalice there, not to understate mm -hmm. it. 
the last thing Jean Charest wants is Patrick Brown endorsing him now or laying his hands mm-hmm. on him now. Because among the rest of the pool of supporters, that is the kiss of death. Patrick Brown may as well put his hands around the throat of John Charest and strangle him. Mr. Charest also has to be very careful, and you noticed he was, in how he responds to what's happening with Mr. Brown. They were very cautious in what they said, said and they led with transparency. Um, yes, it is an opportunity for Mr. Charest, uh, but it, it's going to have to be a very direct persuasion campaign to those voters where he says very little about Patrick Brown. And I think Catherine is right, and Patrick is certainly trying to say this, those voters came because of him, and Chad would know this better than anybody on this uh, on the, uh, in this group. If they come because of you, and they're motivated by because of you, their likelihood of doing something if you're not there is slim to none. And also, Jean Charest doesn't want Patrick Brown behind the scenes, never mind the direct endorsement saying, all right, let's go out and support Charest. I'm not going to say it publicly, but go do that. That You may as well just give Pierre Pauly at the leadership now if, if that starts to, to happen as well. So yes, opportunity for Mr. Charest, because the bro- but so much other challenge, because I think there is a case that can be made and Leslie Lewis could make this too, um, Scott Akinson, but probably Leslie's in a better position to say, are, are you sick of this campus club crap between Pierre and Patrick? Are you sick of this juvenile, you know, male behavior, this paternalistic nonsense? And you want a serious leader and one that's not ethically imperiled? Well, Leslie Lewis doesn't have the same ethical baggage as the top supposed other top three candidates are now top two minus one one have so i'm really interested to see what their play was i noted that steve outhouse who's a very able leader our campaign manager did not get dragged into saying anything yesterday about all of this so watch what lewis does here i think that's going to be fascinating i think if the patrick brown vote was mobile so that if sheree or baber or lewis or another candidate could pick it up they would all be out delivering some version of the same speech which i'll give you a sneak preview of they would be saying, I, I come here today to bury Patrick Brown, uh, not to praise him, right? The evil that Patrick has done uh, 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 will live after him. The good will be interred with his bones, right? They'll pull the Mark Antony. Um, I desperately want to appeal to uh, uh, the supporter, uh, but I won't endorse. But but the fact that you're not seeing the competitive candidates make that play tells you that they don't view the Brown uh, a block vote as accessible to them or, or their organization team today. So I think that that's why you're seeing people hedge their bets so cleanly, not that they think Patrick's going to be allowed back into the race. Um, the, the other thing is, uh, unless you are uh, the Lesson Lewis campaign, which is looking to strongly play second and prove values voters have a home in the party, for everyone else in the race, this is a pretty disappointing moment. It's, it's kind of like the old PC party in 97, when Clark runs and comes within two points of winning and the process has to go on two more weeks to get him over 50, but every other candidate knows the process has ended and we have to go through the motions. I think if you're the, the Shari campaign, the most depressing part of what happens next is you need to go through the motions knowing you may not have a path uh, to being in the number one or the number two spot. So Chad, it's your assumption that the vast, vast majority of Patrick Brown's voters uh, will more or less drop out of this? Uh, if I if I was betting donuts, uh, I would bet you a box of donuts that the the Patrick Brown recruited uh, voting block, uh, which I would have previously put the turnout at about seventy percent at, 
would now be 10 or less. Mm. Uh, so there's not a lot to fight over. Now, uh, the challenge is we, we have a couple of big candidates and a lot of small candidates. So the cascade on how many ballots we're going to have mm. just changed. So we're now going to have more ballots in this process, uh, potentially, unless Pierre can do it in one. Uh, it's going to take him getting down to lessons number twos before he does it, uh, is my guess. So we're either going to have a first ballot victory now or a fifth ballot victory. Yeah. Um how about a broader question? Um, and it's really for all of you, I guess. Uh, Catherine, you, maybe you can kick us off, but um, does this put a shadow over the rest of the race? Does it have a long-term impact in terms of uh, unity within the party? Um, like, is this something that will be forgotten after September 10th? It is a good question. It's certainly one that I'm asking to some of the people that I'm uh, interviewing about this. I, I would say uh, that remains to be seen. I, I frankly am... I think it depends on a lot of things. I guess I'm a bit skeptical that that will be the case, but I think it depends on what we see happen over the course of the next few weeks and months. Um, Chad was just talking about the results. I think that that will be one thing. If there is a very decisive result, um, that will will certainly be one thing that puts to, to bed any uh, suggestion that you know the process was was uh, interfered with or maybe not entirely, perhaps Patrick Brown will still be talking about it by then, but it could certainly help that case. I think it also depends how messy things get over the mm -hmm. course of the next few weeks with Patrick Brown. Um, I, you know, this, there, there, there are the various attempts that we've already talked about to appeal uh, both to the party itself and to the legal system. I think there's a lot of skepticism in all quarters that that is going to be effective because of some of the reasons we've talked about the generally the court's reticence to get involved with the uh, exception of the Jim Carahalios case, which really at the end of the day didn't change anything for Jim Carahalios. The Conservative Party just went back and kicked him out of the race the way they were supposed to the first time. Um, so I, I guess it remains to be seen. I think it will also be interesting to see what happens with this uh, Commissioner of Canadian Elections investigation. I think that too, the results of that, though they it may be a long time coming, um, may lend either some credibility to the party or or to mr brown yeah that's one of the things the you know uh, if they would have given this elections canada with the hope of having it you know dealt with before the votes were counted never would have happened right these are these uh, things it takes a while i there you know i i'm not going to uh, say that Elections Canada is the same as Elections Alberta, but they're still investigating things from Jason Kenney back in 2017 and his leadership run back then. So uh, these things can move slowly. Tim, what do you think about the long-term impacts of this? I don't know about long-term yet, but short to medium-term, of course. Look, this is going to be a central element of the story going to the leadership on September 10th. There's no doubt about that. And let's not forget, though, the story on an ongoing basis about the Conservative Party anyway was what happens on September 11th. This is a new chapter in that story, how dynamic and explosive it may be to be determined. We have seen a version of this story before with the central, the same central actor, and that was in Ontario, where under different allegations and different circumstances, he was forced to step down. He wasn't kicked out. He faded away, actually won another seat, became a mayor, and the Ontario Conservative Party went on to win. And maybe that's some of the contemplation as well uh, among the strategic minds at LEOC that, you know, Brown has a particular pattern of behavior in responding to things like this, and we've seen how it how it plays out. The thing I'm most interested in, uh, Eric, and how that might impact this and the tenure of this story is the Pierre Polyev angle. I think they have a bit of a problem in as much as long as Patrick at least has a stage and the party hasn't provided more of the evidence 
there is a degree of the broader audience that could be malleable to the argument that, you know, Pierre Polyev did all of this dirty deeds, bad tricks and all of that. Maybe he's never going to get voters who think poorly or, uh, of him anyway, but I don't think he wants to create the impression that he inherited a party um, through tricks and misdeeds and the like, given some of the other challenges he's going to have with the electorate should he win when this is all done. So I suspect more than anybody else, they want the party to say more now so they can be removed from this story and the story can be the expulsion of Patrick Brown, not the nefarious ways, as Patrick Brown would have you believe, of uh, of, <clears throat> of the Pierre Polyev campaign. The last thing I'd say is I just can't wait to write the second book. Vic- victimized again, Patrick Brown, the story. Who knew? I'm sure it's in the offing. Sarcasm, everybody. Uh, I'm going to posit the, the, a slight variation in the timeline on the argument Tim and Catherine put forward, which is, I don't think we know until we have the next federal election candidate. Yeah. If Pierre Polyev becomes prime minister and wins the next election, this will be about as important an episode in the history of his trajectory as Chuck Cadman is uh, in the, <laughs> a biography, uh, the late Chuck Cadman, with great respect, uh, uh, to the story of Stephen Harper. If mm-hmm. Pierre Polyev loses the next election, this will be why he was the greatest usurper since the Hanoverians. Uh, and, and a question as to, you know, his core legitimacy was never solidified. It'll be the yeah. backstory that uh, explains part of why he didn't gel and win the next election. But power is the soft concrete that'll uh, uh, pave over all of these cracks in the journey there. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, uh, we've been ask- uh, ending these podcasts with uh, sort of a Uh, who's first, second, third. I think it's pretty obvious now who are the one, two, three, because I don't think either of us think Scott Aitchison or Roman Baver will uh, break onto the podium. uh, And maybe it's not that interesting to know who's second or third. So I guess my question now, um, and Catherine, I'm going to start, and I I know I'm not going to give you a, have you prognosticate. So maybe you can just tell me what other people are telling, but (laughs) does Poiliev now win on the first ballot? Yeah, listen, like that is, that is, that is where the discussion was already there before this, right? Whether or not he could take it on the first ballot or not. Obviously, this is advantageous to him, as I said earlier. Um, you know, I will tell you that one thing one campaign said to me um, about this was that they were actually disappointed to see Patrick Brown out because they didn't believe that he had the numbers that he was saying he did. And now we'll never really know. Right. Um, so I, 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 I think um, Patrick Brown supporters sure as heck think that and, and really what else could they say, given that they were already predicting or, or pardon me, Pierre, Pierre Polyev supporters uh, were already saying he had a good shot at winning on the first ballot. Now, you know, I have folks talking to me about, oh, he's going to take 60, 70 percent of the vote. I think that remains to be seen, but it certainly has increased uh, the enthusiasm amongst Polyev supporters for a, a, a first ballot win. Uh, the likelihood, you know, we, we've just spent over half an hour talking about all the moving parts here. I guess we have to wait and see. Yeah, Tim, what do you think? First ballot or not? Let me go at it a bit of a different way. So I'm not quite sitting on the fence, but I think he has to win it on the first ballot. Uh, in response to what was said a moment ago, for Polyev to assume control of the party after everything that has now happened, I think he has to get a commanding win on the first ballot. I don't think it will be in his interest to go down a path of Andrew Scheer and, and Aaron O'Toole, numerous, numerous runoff ballots. I think to solidify his leadership, to move past what has been the chaos of this leadership race with one big and huge exception, that's 675. That's an incredible achievement. He needs a big first ballot win. 
I, I, he likely can get it, but a lot can happen in the next couple of months. Chad, I'm assuming you now think Joshua Ray has a good shot of winning this thing. <laughs> I still haven't figured out Joshua Ray can get past fourth. Uh, the, the the bigger new problem that if you're running the polyeth campaign you has a, have as of today is if this becomes a fait accompli, uh, the overall turnout in the race is going to go down. This is a hard ballot to execute. You actually have to fill out a, a, a ballot. You have to put it in the right envelope. You have to get it in the mail by the right deadline. And uh, rates, races that become less competitive, the turnout drops because people don't believe their participation is as critical to generate the win. Mm-hmm. They don't see themselves as as vested in the outcome. So the Polyev campaign just inherited a big problem, which is their their rate of mobilization just decreased over whatever yeah. it's going to be. Uh, that makes the first ballot victory harder, uh, where the other candidates who are competing against Polya will have a higher rate of mobilization uh, than potentially they were going to because they have an opponent. The peer doesn't uh, potentially any longer. So uh, I think it's first or fifth. Um, either way, it's a win. And uh, we're now at the point where uh, many conservatives look at the race, look at the next two and a half years and say, Pierre Polyev is going to be leader of the conservative party. The question now, is he going to be prime minister? Yep, that'll be the question for the next couple of years. So uh, we'll chat about that, I'm sure, in the future. So lots uh, happened hey, this week. It was a big week, Tim. Go, before you, no, before you go, I think, look, let's recognize your 50th. Who knew that Patrick Brown yeah. would be the centerpiece of your cake for your 50th yeah. episode? So may you eat cake forever on Patrick's back. As, as a subscriber who just renewed his annual subscription. Oh, uh, suck hole, suck no, hole. No, what I will say, as many of us on this call, uh, Catherine accepted, uh, our small business people. And uh, congratulations to you for yes. building a small business out of nothing. Uh, uh, starting this business, having big subscriber numbers going into the second year. Not a lot of people who go into this space succeed in it. Yep. 50 episodes of the podcast plus reading uh, the kind of data-rich reporting you do. Uh, give yourself a pat on the back, man. It's not at all insignificant. Well done. Well, well that's done. nice. Woo! Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Gold this was fun. We'll chat again uh, before this is all over. So thanks a lot to today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Chad Rogers is a founding partner at Crestview Strategy. Tim Powers is chairman at Sumer Strategies. And Catherine Cullen is a senior reporter at the CBC, thanks to them. While I was away for the last few weeks, uh, there were a few news items I wanted to briefly chat about. BC Premier John Horgan announced he would be stepping down once the BC New Democrats choose his replacement in the fall. He had undergone treatments for cancer, and though he is cancer-free, he said he wasn't able to make a long-term commitment and so would step aside. The next election in British Columbia is scheduled only for 2024. The NDP in Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia named their new leaders. Carla Beck will become the first female permanent leader of the Saskatchewan NDP, while Claudia Chender takes over the NDP in Nova Scotia. The federal Green Party has finally set the date for its leadership race, and I'm looking forward to talking about that on the podcast once we get a little bit deeper into it. We'll know the final roster of candidates on August 31st, and voting will take place in October and November if there are more than five candidates. The party is going to have a two-round race if the candidate list is long enough. Either way, we'll know the name of the next leader of the Greens on November 19th. And a few weeks ago, Jacques Poitra had joined the podcast to chat about two by-elections in New Brunswick. In the end, the progressive conservatives ended up winning both, holding Southwest Miramichi Bay de Vin and upsetting the Liberals in Miramichi Bay Neguac. All right. Now you're up to date, and that'll be it for this week. 
As always, be sure to check out therit.ca for all the latest, and if you aren't already a subscriber, please consider subscribing to the site, getting access to everything, and supporting the work I'm doing. Okay, until next week, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.